Well, good morning, everybody. Before we open the Word of God, let's take a moment to pray together. Father in heaven, how grateful we are to be in your presence on this Lord's Day, this particular Lord's Day that we remember even all across our nation, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that that's not just a date on our calendars. Thank you that it's the truth. Thank you that it really happened. At a day and a time in history, Jesus walked out of that tomb. And we give you our thanks. And we pray now that as we think together about the implications of the resurrection on, on as simple things as our daily lives, will you help us? Will you teach us? Will you give this poor preacher grace to speak, and will you give your people grace to hear? And may we overcome whatever challenges there are with virtual worship, with doing this over the Internet and so many people sitting in their homes. We're thankful for that technology, but will you help us? Will you help us to enter in and to hear from you by your Spirit, through your Word, we pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to a most unusual Easter Sunday morning. And it is unusual, isn't it? In many ways, it's unusual. It's not so particularly unusual for me because we've got a small handful of people out here that have helped just do the service, worship team and AV people, um, but there was a day back in the late 70s, and yes, I go back even beyond the late 70s. There was a day when I pastored in South Carolina, a little bitty church, and I would preach Lord's after Lord's Day to fewer people than are sitting out here, just this little handful of people. So this is, this is like harking back to what was normal for me many, many moons ago. Uh, but we're grateful for the technology, and we're grateful for... Um, a good crowd online, so welcome from your living rooms or kitchens or family rooms or recliners. Don't get too comfortable in that recliner this morning, okay? Um, we're thankful uh, we've gathered together. But these days are hard, aren't they? It's not, um, it's not easy to see one another's faces and not be able to greet one another like we normally do. And you got to stand six feet away. That's hard. It's hard not knowing what this whole situation will be like tomorrow or a month from now or three months from now, but our hope is in God who does all things well, and he will bring good for us, and he will bring glory for himself out of all of this. So therein lies our hope and our trust. This morning we come together to think about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. Now stop for just a second and think about the words that just came out of my mouth. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ on one particular Friday in real history, outside the real city of Jerusalem whose stone walls still stand and we can walk up to those walls and we can lay our hands on those very walls outside of which Jesus was crucified. He was brutally and hatefully crucified on a Roman cross on one particular Friday 
in history outside that city. And that same day, his lifeless body was laid in a borrowed tomb. And in the early hours of Sunday morning, he walked out of that tomb. He walked right out of that tomb, living and breathing and with a beating heart. Because he was alive, convincingly alive, demonstrably alive, indisputably alive. And the implications of that event have been more momentous than any other single event in the entire course of history. That, that's huge, isn't it? That's a huge statement to make. The implications of that event have been more momentous than any other single event in all of history. But at the same time, those implications, those huge, remarkable implications have a bearing on our lives right here and now in some of the simplest, most practical ways that you can ever imagine. And I say that because at the conclusion of the Apostle Paul's most, most lengthy defense of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, he finishes that discourse with these words. Pastor Keith read them to us just a moment ago. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. We're going to look at that text this morning, and as we do, I hope, with God's help, we'll be able to see how down-to-earth, how nitty-gritty, how extremely practical that exhortation is and how it flows right out of the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is not just a random tack on at the end of chapter 15. Oh, yeah, we talked about all the resurrection stuff. Oh, yeah, my beloved brethren, y'all y'all do good now, okay? Y'all stick with it and y'all hang in there and bound in the work of the Lord. <clears throat> That's not just a tacked on afterthought. What he says, be steadfast and move along and bounding in the work of the Lord, flows right out of that whole treatment, the largest one in all of the New Testament, about the resurrection. And we'll see that connection in just a little bit. So, our outline this morning is going to be really simple. It's who, what, how, and why. Kids, sitting on the couch sitting on the living room floor, wrapped up in your blanket, kids, wherever you're sitting. Kids, I want, I want you to get this, okay? It's who, what, how, and why. You help mom and dad remember this outline, okay? When you sit down to your lovely Sunday Easter dinner, which will probably be different than many Sunday Easter dinners, but when you sit down to that dinner, whatever it is, you help mom and dad remember this outline, okay? It's, it's who, what, how, and why. Now, let me give you just a little bit more on that outline, okay? Number one, who is Paul talking about? Secondly, what are they doing? These people he's talking about, what are they doing? Thirdly, how are they doing it? And fourth, why are they doing it? So, isn't that simple, kids? You can hang on to that. Who is Paul talking about? What are they doing? How are they doing it? And why? Are they doing it? So let's start with the first. Who is Paul talking about? Well, this is Paul's first letter to the whom? Class? To the Corinthians. 
He's writing to the Corinthians. But let's think about this a minute. Corinth, where the Corinthians lived, was an incredibly wicked city. It had a reputation far and wide for gross immorality. It is not a stretch to think that a host of other sins accompanied their immorality. Immorality by its very nature is remarkably selfish. And selfishness gives rise to pride and divisions and disagreements and arguments and inconsiderateness and thinking more importantly of yourself than others. So when Paul came to Corinth, this is the audience he was talking to. When he first came, he preached, as was his habit, to the synagogue. And the Jews rose up against him. And, and the violence was huge against Paul. So he left the synagogue. He said those famous words. He shook off the dust of his robes. And he said, from now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. And so he went right next door to the synagogue, to the house of one of the leaders. And Gentiles gathered, and he preached the gospel to these, to these wicked, immoral Argumentative, self-centered, prideful, arrogant, wicked Corinthians. And guess what happened? They began to repent and believe. And a church was planted. A church that Paul personally labored over for 18 months. That was a pretty long time for Paul to be in any one place because he moved around all the time. But he saw what was happening in Corinth. And, these, and these, these wicked and moral people were being converted and, and believing the gospel. And so Paul stayed and labored over this budding congregation for 18 months. But now before we look too far down our noses at these Corinthians, these Corinthian believers were not altogether unlike us. When you got converted, the Corinthian believers got converted, but did all their problems just disappear? Did they? No. No, Paul goes through a whole list of them in 1 Corinthians. When you got converted, did you suddenly conquer every sin in your background? The answer is no. No. Did you suddenly stop being selfish? No. Did you suddenly put off every last remnant of worry? No. Did you shed every last shred of pride? No. Did you immediately stop having lustful thoughts? No. Here's one. Did you never, ever, ever again lose your temper after you were converted? No. Husbands, did your love for your wife suddenly become the prime, pristine example of Christ's love for the church? No. Did your life change? Of course it did, in all sorts of ways, but it didn't mean you were suddenly rid of all your remaining sins. One of my favorite theologians, John Murray, describes us this way in his... Um, it's either in his exposition of Romans 6 or it's in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. I don't remember where this quote was, but he said, he said, what we are is we're new men not yet made perfect. We are new. 
But perfection is coming on down the road when we see him face to face. We're new men not yet made perfect. So conversion put us on a path of gradually and steadily fighting against our remaining sins. That path is called sanctification. And that's precisely what happened with these Corinthians. They were on the road to sanctification, but they were not yet perfect. So in our text this morning, he calls them my beloved brethren. They were dear to his heart. He'd watched them come to Christ. He'd watched them begin to grow. He'd watched their struggles. He had prayed for them. He labored over them. He admonished them. He exhorted them. He loved them, my beloved brethren. And he encouraged them to be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. And he wanted them to know that their labors were not in vain in the Lord. But the reason their labors were not in vain was not because they had become such good learners and such good disciples. And they had done so well in all the things that Paul preached to them. That's not why their labors for the Lord were in vain. It was not because they were so good at what they did for Jesus. Remember the kinds of things Paul wrote to them about. The Corinthians are well known for what? Divisions. Paul got word from Chloe's people that there were divisions among them. And some said, I'm of Paul. And some said, I'm of Cephas. And some said, I'm of Apollos. Good for me. And then there were a few who said, I'm of Christ. I'm a Pastor Keith. I'm a Pastor Thad. I'm of the other Pastor Keith. I'm a Pastor Mark. Oh, I'm of Christ. And they're and they're splitting all uh, divisions in this in this new budding. Congregation, yes, there were divisions. There was immorality still. They were converted out of a horrendously immoral culture. Did all of that immorality suddenly fall away? Like, like, a, like a snake that sheds its skin? No. There was immorality in that church of a pretty base sort that, that a man had his father's wife. Wow. And there was a failure to deal with that immorality. And they were suing each other. They were, they were the lawsuits. I'm suing, I'm suing Jamie because, because she took her French horn and turned that thing over and let the spit drip out on the floor. And that offended me. Cliff, sue her. You know I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> But it was, it was frivolous, silly stuff. There were abuses of Christian liberty. The people with a weaker conscience. We're looking, we're looking at, the, at the people with a stronger conscience and say, what is wrong with you? And the people with a stronger conscience look down their nose at the weaker people and say, what is wrong with you? There were abuses of Christian liberty. And there was grumbling. And Paul writes them about what God did to the Israelites in the wilderness because they grumbled so you better quit your grumbling and there was there were remnants of idolatry and there were abuses of the Lord's Supper and there were arguments over spiritual gifts and who had the best ones and who used them better than anybody else and 
And there was disorder in their public worship, which is why Paul had to say, let everything be done decently and in order. And there were doctrinal problems with the doctrine of the resurrection. All that stuff was going on in the church in Corinth among people who had genuinely repented and believed. Sorry, that was a wasp that just buzzed by my head. Those kind of things were going on in that congregation. So when, when Paul says to these beloved brethren, whom he calls in chapter 1, saints by calling, who still wrestled with a boatload of problems, that their labor is not in vain in the Lord. It is for sure not because they were so good at what they did. Be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The reason their labor was not in vain because they were so good at what it was not because they were so good at what they were doing for the Lord. Their performance was not the reason for the success of their labors. So Paul is obviously writing to the Corinthians, whom he calls beloved brethren, saints by calling, who still wrestled with a lot of sin. That's, those are the people to whom Paul was writing. You know who else to whom he was writing? You and me. He was writing to you and me. This, this book is the living and abiding Word of God, which is always profitable in every generation to equip us for every good work. So Paul is writing to us. Let's not be looking down our nose at the Corinthians and say, oh, we got a better reason for our labors not to be in vain because we're better than they are. No! What, the, the, the value of our labor in the Lord is not rooted in our performance. And we'll see that. So we're not very different, so very different from the Corinthians. We're beloved brothers and sisters, saints by calling, and we still wrestle with a boatload of sin. I do, and you do. So our labor in the Lord is to... So if our labor in the Lord is to not be in vain, if it's going to be of any profit whatsoever, then the reason for our labor is not to be in vain doesn't lie with us. It's outside of me. It's not going to be because I'm doing such a good job. And we'll come to that reason in a few minutes. So Paul is talking to us here. He's talking to the Corinthians originally, but now he's talking to us. So who is Paul talking about? He's talking about us. Okay. Number two, what are they, the Corinthians, or what are we, since Paul's talking to us, what are we doing? What we're doing is called in this text the work of the Lord. Look at the text. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your ESV says labor, New American Standard says toil, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The word toil here is a word that carries with it the idea of the weariness that's often associated with labor. So Paul says, what, what, what are they doing? They're, they're toiling. They're laboring. They're doing the work of the Lord. Okay? What's that? What's the work of the Lord? What is this toil? What kind of work is Paul talking about here? Well, he doesn't seem to be singling out the elders of the church in this text and talking primarily or exclusively about the work of the ministry. 
So he's not talking specifically about their shepherding and leading, preaching, and teaching, although that would certainly include that. So when he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, he's not just talking about Pastor Keith and Pastor Thad and Pastor Keith and Pastor Mark. He's talking about the brethren. Seems to be a much broader exhortation addressed to the congregation as a whole. The word brethren, a generic term including men and women, the brothers and sisters. Paul uses that word 27 times in this letter. And almost every time it's referring to the church broadly. So he's talking to the congregation as a whole, my beloved brethren. Now what kind of labor is he talking about? May I be so bold to suggest that he's talking about whatever they do? He's talking about whatever they do. Whatever God has given each of them to do is the work of the Lord for them. Just a few chapters earlier, in chapter 10, verse 31, he gets down to the nitty-gritty of eating and drinking. Whatever then you, whether then you eat or drink or, next word, whatever, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So what they do is a very broad application here the work of the Lord what you toil in for the Lord it's it's huge it's broad it's whatever you do in Colossians 3 after Paul talks about husbands and wives and children and servants he gives us these familiar words whatever you do this is verse 23 of Colossians 3 whatever you do do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men and the word work there in Colossians 3 23 is the same word in 1st Corinthians 15 58 Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Same word. And in Colossians, the the application is obviously broad. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord. So the work of the Lord for them and for us is whatever the Lord has given them and us to do. May I be even more specific? What is it that we do? Well, it could be the work of the ministry. Could be. It could be the work of a mother caring for small children. It could be the work of an employer or an employee. It could be the disciplining of your children. It could be the work of secret prayer. It could be the witness you're trying to have with your neighbor. Whatever, whatever it is, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Whatever that work is for you. It could be your schoolwork which is way different these days, isn't it, than it was a month and a half ago. But if that's your work, then be steadfast and immovable and abounding in that work. So it could be your schoolwork. It could be the work of personal evangelism. It could be the work of loving one another and being quick to forgive one another. Be steadfast and immovable in that work could be the work of hospitality, be steadfast and move abounding in that work of hospitality, even though that work takes on different shapes and forms in these days, doesn't it? Leaving a bag of, of groceries on somebody's front doorstep. Be steadfast and movable. It could be, it could be the work of mutual encouragement and exhortation. It could be the exercise of whatever spiritual gift God has given you. It could be the work of helping the elderly. And when they first started talking about this COVID-19 stuff, they were talking about risky categories, you know. And they were talking about the elderly and, the, and, and those with 
maybe lung issues and that kind of stuff. And I said, yeah, they need to be careful. 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 And then somebody said to me, that's you. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> it could be the work of caring for the elderly. So you all be steadfast and movable and taking care of me, okay? <laughs> all right. It could be the work of caring for the elderly. It could, be, it could be the work of giving financially for the sake of the kingdom. It could be the work of helping your little brother or sister around the house. It could be the work of always telling the truth, even when it's really hard to tell the truth. It could be the work of just working hard at your job. It could be the work of a first responder. Thank you, first responders. May God help you in that noble, difficult work these days. It could be the work of a music team member. It could be the work of preaching. It could be the work of setting up behind the scenes so that our worship can take place. It could be the work of caring for children in the nursery or teaching them in a Sunday school class if we ever get back to have a nursery in Sunday school again. And I'm sure we will. I hope we will. It could be the work of an auto mechanic. It could be the work of a school teacher trying to teach without a classroom. It could be the work of a doctor or a nurse in the face of a pandemic. Thank you to all our health care workers for what you do. It could be the work of a soldier, a sailor, an airman, or a marine. You get the point? We could, we could keep on going for another ten minutes listing work. It's whatever work God has called you to do. And whatever it is you do, do it as unto Him rather than for men. You do it for His glory, not for your own personal recognition. But it's the work that God has given you to do. Whatever that work is, there are a thousand categories. In that work, be steadfast and immovable and abounding in the work of the Lord. So, who is he talking about? He's talking about us. What are we doing? The work of the Lord. Lots and lots of categories. Now, thirdly, how are they, the Corinthians, or we, how are we doing it? Well, look at the text again. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. How should we do it? With steadfastness. With immovableness. Is that a word? It is now, okay? And abounding in the work of the Lord. That's how we ought to be going about whatever work God has given us to do. We ought to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The first two of these words are very closely related. They're almost synonyms. The word steadfast means settled. It actually comes from a word that means seated. Are you more stable if you're sitting down in a good chair or if you're standing up? Seated. Seated. That's the original root of this word, but it means settled, not moved, fixed, firmly established, committed, well-founded, not carried away. That's steadfast. And the word immovable means not readily shaken, unwavering. See, those, those, are, those are such related concepts. And the third word is abounding. Abounding in the word of the Lord. It means, it, means, it means more than enough. It means having an abundance over the top. Paul uses this word in Ephesians 1 where he says, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He 
lavished upon us. That's this word. It's abundant. It's abundant. Is there any lack to the grace of God? When, when Jesus was on earth and, and going around healing and, and feeding and helping and serving, did Jesus ever, 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 ever run out of grace? People were lined up to come to Jesus for healing. And I don't read one time in the New Testament where the line was long and long and long and the last three guys in line came up to Jesus. They finally got to him and the sun's gone down and he's worn out and he's tired and he's weary and he's hungry. And these last three guys come up and Jesus says, Tomorrow. I can't do it. I'm out. I'm out of gas. I have no more. My power's drained. Did that ever happen? No. No. He healed them all, the New Testament says. He never ran out of grace. There was an abundant supply of grace. That's this word that Paul uses for abounding in the work of the Lord. The grace He lavished upon us. It's the, it's the prodigal son when he came to his senses and he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? That's the word that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians 15. More than enough. Abounding in the work of the Lord. The idea in these words as to how we should be doing the work of the Lord is that we must be committed and unwavering to the point of excelling, going the extra mile, pouring heart and soul into what God has given us to do. Abounding in it and not being turned aside. So, those are strong, rich, full words. It's another form of the exhortation to the Thessalonians when Paul said to them, you already know how to love each other, but I urge you, excel still more. That's the abounding he's talking about. Or to the Galatians, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Be steadfast and immovable and abounding in the work of the Lord. You see this in the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry. The work God gave him to do was to what? It was to live and die in the place of guilty sinners. You boil the work of Jesus down when he came to this earth. Boil it down. And what, what did God give him to do? He, he sent him to live in our place and secure a perfect spotless righteousness for us, and he sent him to die in our place to soak up all the wrath of God against us. That's what he came to do. To live righteously without sin, without giving up, without turning aside, without saying this is really not worth it, without caving in. And don't you know that Jesus had every earthly reason to give up and say, I've had it. I, 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 take me home. He had every reason to think that. You think about, think about his disciples. Oh my goodness. His disciples, this is not all they were, okay? But this is part of what they were. They were thick-headed, fickle-minded, earthbound, self-centered learners. What would you do if somebody walked up to you and said that to you? Thick-headed, fickle-minded, earthbound, self-centered. Well, read about them. That's, that's what they were. And they were that way all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane where they slept more than they prayed and then they forsook Him and fled. But He didn't give up. 
not even with those bullheaded disciples. He didn't give up. He was steadfast and immovable in the work God gave him to do in living a righteous life. And the other part of the work God gave him to do was to die a horrible, wrath-absorbing, sin-bearing, substitutionary death in the place of guilty sinners. And how many opportunities did he have to give up on that work that God gave him to do? Peter tried to talk him out of it. When he said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be... I'm going to suffer and die. Peter said, no, Lord, not, not. that will never happen to you. And Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. Peter tried to talk him out of it. Some of the crowd, when he hung on the cross, some of the crowd shouted, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Well, of course he was the Son of God. And had you been hanging there or had I been hanging there, you know what we'd have done? If we'd have been Jesus, we'd have done the same thing he did. We'd have stayed right there. But if it would have been just me, I'd have got down off that thing faster than you and say, go. Because who wants to stay and endure the wrath of God? Come down if you're the son of God. Well, of course he was. The chief priest, scribes, and elders said, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. There's a ticket to get off the cross. You come down, we'll believe in you. But he was steadfast, immovable. However great the temptation was to come down, he was abounding in the work of the Lord. And so he stayed right there and finished what he came to do. He had set his face like a flint and nothing was going to turn him aside. He was steadfast and immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. And so must we be. That is what we're called to do. But wait a minute, you just say, I'm not Jesus. He could do it. I ain't Him. No, we're not Him. But guess what? We are attached to Him by faith. And we have access to that power and strength and determination and will and fortitude to be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work that God has given us to do. God didn't give us the work of living a perfect life and dying a substitutionary death. But He's given all sorts of other things to do and we have access to Jesus. And we can draw upon that power to be steadfast and immovable. You also see... This resolve, this steadfastness, this immovability and aboundingness in the Apostle Paul. Here's a, here's a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 28. And I know what you're going to say when I finish reading this. I'm not Paul. I know that. But listen, listen. Are they servants of Christ? This is for, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been in frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. 
I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. You talk about being steadfast and immovable and abounding in the work of the Lord. That was the Apostle Paul. But you remember what Paul said about his labors? 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God I am what I am and His grace toward me did not prove vain. I labored even more than all of them. He was steadfast and movable and abounding. Yet not I but the grace of God with me and you have access and I have access to that same grace that enabled Paul to be steadfast and abounding and immovable in the work that God gave him to do. In Colossians 1.29 Paul said and for this purpose also I labor Striving according to, his, according to His power which mightily works within me. Paul is an extraordinary man, yes. But he wasn't steadfast and immovable and abounding on his own. It was the grace of God in him. And you and I have access to that same grace. So, who is Paul talking about? Us. What are we doing? The work of the Lord. How are we doing it? being steadfast and immovable and abounding. But now in the last place, and with this will be done, why are they or we doing it? The simple answer is that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. How many, how many things do you do and you start doing it and you see this is going nowhere and so what do you do? What do you do? You stop. This is getting no place. I'm not, the, whatever, I, however, whatever it is, it's going nowhere, and so you quit. But the reason they didn't quit, and the reason Paul exhorts us not to quit, but to be steadfast and immovable and abounding, is that our labor is not in vain. It's not going nowhere. It's not empty. It does not come to nothing. It is not wasted. It may not always look that way to us because sometimes, sometimes on the front lines, the patient dies. That happens. And sometimes the reconciliation we desire does not come. And sometimes the plan doesn't work. And sometimes we do grow weary. And we throw up our hands in resignation. And we say, what's the use? And sometimes the battle is lost, and sometimes it doesn't make any sense to us. But that's only because we don't see the big picture. We see this. We see this little tiny speck. We see this little tiny piece. And we, and we think it's in vain. We think what God has given us to do is in vain. Because we're focused on this little tiny piece and we don't see the big picture God is painting. We don't understand how this or that apparent failure fits into the big picture that is not in vain. Nothing ever looked like more of an utter failure than the death of Jesus. Nothing ever in all of history looked more like an utter failure than the death of Jesus. Stand there with the disciples at the cross. And you saw this guy that's hanging on the cross you saw him you saw him raise the dead you saw him heal the blind you saw him make the lame to walk you saw him take five loaves and two fish and feed five thousand plus people you saw all of that you heard what he said and now kaboom 
It's over. We ain't going nowhere. He is dead. And they took his lifeless body down from the cross and they laid it in a borrowed tomb and they rolled this massive stone over the door. And the Romans sealed it. Nothing ever looked like a failure than the death of Jesus. Until Sunday morning came. Sunday morning came. Sunday morning dawned and Jesus walked out of that tomb living and breathing with a beating heart. He was convincingly, demonstrably, and indisputably alive. And suddenly it began to be clear that it was not in vain. You see, what makes our labor in the Lord to be not in vain is all the work that Jesus did was not in vain. It's not because I'm so good at what I do. It's because Jesus was so good at what He did. And He rose from the dead to say, everything I did, did really is good for you. And he broke the back of death. And he broke the back of sin. And that's why your labor and mine is not in vain. His magnificent resurrection from the dead was proof positive that what he did was not in vain. And so I want you to notice, go back to the very first word in our text. Therefore. Therefore. On the basis of what has just been said. And all that is preceded, because everything I just wrote to you, particularly about the resurrection of Jesus, therefore, on that basis, because that is true, be steadfast and movable and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The whole reason behind this exhortation in verse 58 is the resurrection of Jesus. Paul makes the point early in this chapter that without the resurrection of Jesus, everything is vain. It's empty and worthless. First Corinthians 15 13 and 19, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witness against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. You see, apart from the resurrection of Jesus, all, everything, everything is in vain. All our labor, all our repentance, all our believing, it's all in vain. All the stuff we do, it's in vain. It's empty. It's meaningless. Because without the, without the resurrection, what Jesus did in his life and death is empty. It has no power. It was all just to show there's really no victory over sin. And isn't sin what messes up our being steadfast and immovable and abounding? Don't we fail in those things because of our sin? So Paul says right before this text, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory over what? Victory over sin. Thanks be to God that Jesus gives us victory over sin, over the sin that makes us weary, over the sin that wrecks our motives, over the sin that fills us with pride, the sin that weakens our resolve, the sin that makes us waver instead of being steadfast. What is it? 
What is it, dear people, that keeps that sin from totally swallowing us up and ruining us forever? What is it that keeps the sin that remains in us from turning everything we do into vanity? It is the resurrection of Jesus which demonstrated his victory over the devil and sin and death. And it is just for that reason that we can be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. It is not in vain because what Jesus did was not in vain. And he proved that by rising from the dead. And it's our attachment to him. It's our union with him by faith that enables us to draw on that resurrection power to put sin to death and to press on in being steadfast and immovable and abounding in the work of the Lord. So let me ask you, let me ask some of you, first of all, are you attached by faith to Jesus? Is your hope in Him? Do you belong to Him? Have you come to Him in repentance and faith and rested the whole weight of your soul on Him to make you right with God? Are you a Christian? If you're not a Christian, your life is what? It's in vain. It's a waste. It's worthless. You need to get in Jesus. Boys and girls, this is for you too. Easter Sunday is not mostly about the Easter bunny and Easter eggs. As fun as Easter egg hunts are, Easter is about Jesus rising from the dead and proving that his life and death were not wasted. He lived and died and rose again for sinners just like you boys and girls. And he calls you to come in repentance and faith so that you can be right with God. And everyone who comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. And dear Christian, this is a message of hope for you. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Did you hear that? Your labor in the Lord, whatever God has given you to do, it's not in vain. And it doesn't depend on how well you do it. Oh, if I get to this level of goodness in my work for the Lord, if I get to this level of almost perfection in the work of the Lord, then it's going to be worth something. No. Your work in the Lord, however feeble, however stained with the sin that remains in us, is not in vain in the Lord because Jesus rose from the dead. And He takes your work, feeble though it may be, and mine, and Jesus cleans it up and cleanses us, cleanses it and presents it to God. It is not in vain. It's not empty. And so be steadfast, immovable, Abounding, don't be weary in well-doing. Press on, excel still more. Be abounding in the work of the Lord, whatever He's given you to do. Be steadfast in your Bible reading. Be immovable in devoting time to prayer. Abound in your love for one another. And all that God has given you to do. And when you stumble and fall, and we do, when you stumble and fall, get up and run to Jesus and find renewed hope and grace in the gospel to be steadfast and immovable. After you've stumbled a hundred times, get back up and press on to be steadfast and immovable because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're so grateful that we celebrate 
the resurrection of Jesus on this Easter Sunday. And we thank you that because of his resurrection, the work that you've given us to do is not in vain. Thank you that what Jesus did was not in vain. And because his work was not in vain, our work is not in vain. And you give us grace to be steadfast and immovable and abounding in the work of the Lord. So help us and have mercy on many who have heard about you today and have yet to believe in Jesus. Will you draw them to yourself and make them your own? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.